let's thank God for another beautiful evening. Dear Lord, we're very thankful for this time in your word and we're thankful for the place to sit and uh, be free and discuss your word without fear. We'd ask that you would bless us this evening. In your son's name, amen. Okay, um, it's not a good look on, a, on, on Bible study notes when the uh, chapter we're covering is 10 verses long, narrow little column on the left, and then there's a whole bunch of small type. Um, but the book of Jonah isn't long in itself, and, and as we learned last week with the first chapter, um, the material goes by us pretty quickly. And the, the, uh, I wanted to bring up a number of passages that seem to imp- what's the word? lean on Jonah a little bit uh, as we go through it. Now, as you know, last week, Jonah, this is the late 800s BC reign of Shamshi Adad V in Assyria, and Jonah has uh, run, fled from the presence of the Lord and got himself into uh, a whale somehow by the end of the chapter. And that's the last verse of the previous chapter. Um, he swallowed by a whale. And chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... Now, some people say, well, Evan, why'd you call it a whale when it says fish? And everybody says, whales can't swallow people and all sorts of sciencey stuff like that. And they point out that it's called a great fish or something like that. And Jonah, I believe the Lord refers to it as a whale when he uh, refers to the sign of Jonah. Um, so I'll go with Jesus on this. You can, you can deal with it some other way. Um, when you, you know the basic rundown of the book. He refuses to go, ends up in a whale. Prays inside the whale, chapter 2. Gets out of the whale by the end of, I'm not spoiling anything for any of you. You read the, sell the flannel graph. You're, you're, uh, you're familiar. Um, and then he goes off to Nineveh, and then he doesn't like the way things turn out for Nineveh. Those are your four chapters. But some things keep getting repeated, and some things that are pretty much a part of our lives, or we see them also biblically as part of more people's lives. This is a prayer of confession. The whole chapter is his prayer in the, uh, the belly of the whale. He prayed in verse 1, verse 10, um, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The prayer is over. You have other prayers of repentance, uh, different kinds. You have the famous one of uh, David's, uh, Psalm 51, which a uh, little bit <coughs> up here on the top right-hand side. <coughs> because as I'm looking at a prayer of repentance, not saying that Jonah was put into the whale or repented so, you might say, artistically, that we're supposed to learn how to pray, pray penitent prayers from Jonah. Um, you may pick up some things. But Jonah is actually, I would assume, Jonah is the source for all this information. If Jonah doesn't write the book of Jonah, whoever wrote the book of Jonah is sitting there with Jonah and he's, you know, Xeroxing him off a copy of the poem he wrote while he was in the belly of the fish. The point of last week, one of the key points, is something that comes up again. It was uh, uh, we even spoke of it a little bit uh, last week when he said, 
he fled from the presence of the Lord. And then, what was the phrase? Uh, he had told the uh, other sailors that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It was uh, uh, repeated about three times, I think. Isaiah, Joel, Amos. Where's Jonah? There it is. In verse um, 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse, end of 3, he went with them on the boat to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Um, For he had told him, verse 10, told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The, uh, this idea of the presence of the Lord comes back up in his prayer of contrition. Now we're going to read through, um, let's read through the first four verses. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice. For thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from thy presence. How shall I again look upon thy holy temple? The story has changed a little bit about this presence of the Lord business. Um, uh, and it brought to mind, one of the reasons I was thinking of the other prayer of contrition of David's um, is because he starts out in verse 11 of Psalm 51, top of the right-hand column. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, David's was one of a contrition against a moral sin, a fleshly appetite sin. It was the sin with Bathsheba. Jonah is just a, a very poorly religious man, and he is not wanting to do what the Lord said religiously, not want to fulfill his short-term mission project in Nineveh. But in either case, well, David had ended up morally walking away from the presence of the Lord, and he is dealing with being cast off, and so is Jonah, being cast off from thy presence. I am cast out from thy presence. How shall I look again upon thy holy temple? Um, there's something that, a few things we've got to consider. One is, the Old Testament saints didn't have the relationship with the Holy Spirit that you have as a Christian. The Holy Spirit hadn't been given in the sense we have it today. It was uh, where you are regenerated, uh, you're empowered, uh, various things like that that didn't happen until Pentecost. They did have the influence of the Holy Spirit, but not in the, re again, the regenerative way you have experienced it. But they did have a, you might say, an anchor point, anchor points of their faith. Now it seems that one for Jonah is the temple. That's how he's thinking of, I'm cast out from thy presence, how shall I again look upon thy holy temple? And that's of some interest. Especially when we know as Christians that it's not a religion of locatability, you know, where, but you have to remember that the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat, the presence of God sat, dwelt. 
what aspect of God's presence, I don't know, but we know that was the case, as long as the Ark of the Covenant was there. Um, so it really was a presence, but you don't, want, you don't want to wake up one day going, were the Old Testament Christians just like Muslims? You know, praying towards the temple? It actually recommends that. Solomon recommends it. Um, in, uh, I have a passage here on the left-hand side from 1 Kings. Look down at verse 30. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and thy people Israel. When they pray toward this place, this is right after he built the temple. Uh, a little bit later, uh, verse um, uh, 33, and make supplication to thee in this house. Uh, verse 35, if they pray toward this place, verse 38 at the end of it, toward this house, it would seem that, that yeah, there, there was kind of a, maybe the shadow that the temple was. We know that the New Testament teaches us that the tabernacle and the temple and all these things were shadows of things to come. They weren't the actual. Um, but you don't want to really think that it's too much that way, that there was a primitive, almost idolatrous religion like people would worship false gods. Now, we know there were no gods in the temple, but... We do know that people slipped up that way when Isaiah, I think it is, says, do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. Now, we have this presence in his contrition. He really wants to, when he, he's making synonymous, being cast out from thy presence and looking upon um, thy holy temple. Now, first off, I think that we want to look at not just how the temple is featuring in this, but how being cast out. It's amazing. You probably, those of you who have kids, um, have realized that little Johnny, the infidel, is happy to run away from home at some point. Like now. <laughs> Whose grandchildren are those? Um, the... Uh, um, little Johnny can wrap up his little sandwich in his, what do they call a bandana, tie it to a stick and tell his mother off and I'm leaving home, he's seven. Until he, until mother says something like, well, have a good time. I got work to do. Walks back in the house, shuts the door, locks it. <laughs> he tries the door, it won't open. His decision is fixed. Suddenly his his view, when you're looking at, looking at God in the rear view mirror, like, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm leaving it behind, I'm leaving him behind, I'm leaving her behind, whatever it is. And then you realize it's you in the rear view mirror. God casting you off. God walking away from you. Um... We always, you probably have seen something on, on the internet about the famous uh, um, footprints poster, the number of times you could, well, it was only one set of footprints, and that's when you were backsliding and you walked off and, and, and everybody else wants to be carried by Jesus. Jesus wants to just leave you. Um, 
Now, you might not hold that view, but Jonah certainly has moved from fleeing the presence of the Lord to being chagrined, uh, horrified that he is cast off from the presence of the Lord. There's something about our own decisions. We know we're not very dependable. We don't have a lot of integrity. We make them now and we change them tomorrow. You break up with your girlfriend and then you take her back tomorrow. Because we're not, we're, we're fickle. We kind of feel that God isn't that way. So when you start, when God starts to drop you, it starts to horrify you. And the cost for, for Jonah, and he's measuring it in terms of the temple. You've read probably some Psalms of David where he talks about the joy of always being in the Lord's house, in, the, in his holy temple. Better to be there than anywhere else. But we want to, we want to, here we are, we're going to, you know, cozy up to Jonah or cozy up to David and gain some spiritual good. We don't want it to seem like they're almost either pagans or, or, uh, or Muslims. There, there should be some sensibility here that, that clarifies for us really what the Lord was about. That he's not, yes, there are shadows, yes, there are things that we're not supposed to do anymore that they did and they thought were imminently religious. And the temple, they believed, was imminently religious. And it was a place where the presence of God actually rested. But what are you going to pick up from this? What's the, if that's the shadow, what's our gain from Jonah on this? Back in the first Kings passage, I, I skipped into the middle of it. But this is Solomon talking after the temple is built. Uh, one mid one mid one sixties, nine sixties. Excuse me, it was begun in nine sixty seven. I think uh, began the building. Forget how many years. Anybody know how many years it took to build the temple? A bit, a few years. They dedicate the temple, and he's praying this prayer. Um, after at the dedication of the temple. Verse uh, 27, right there at the top. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, hearkening to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee this day, that thy eyes may be open night and day toward this house the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken to the prayer which thy servant offers toward this place, and hearken to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, yea, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. Solomon is completely, he's not clueless about this. He knows perfectly well, like Jonah did. Now, Solomon is about, 150 years before Jonah. And so the, the temple is well into its career by the time you get down to Jonah. It's just getting dedicated here. But Solomon is taking a very Christian outlook on it. Very, you might say, it's almost preparatory, preparatory to the Gentile mission that is really central to Jonah. In that this isn't, this is a place where God made his name dwell. 
this is not where he dwells. He dwells in heaven. It says, um, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Just be open to us praying toward this place because your name dwells there. And that makes it, you might say, that's the address. That's the correct address. Because if you were to say in the ancient world, oh God, forgive, there'd be like 4,800 voices going, uh, hello? Because there's a lot of gods out there going, uh, are you one of mine? No, 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 no. The God of Jerusalem, Yahweh in the temple, He gives a number of different examples here. Verse 33, when the people... Oh, verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor, he's asking God in each of these difficult calamities to hear his, the prayers that involve his temple as being, you might say, correct in address, correct in definition of who, which God is he talking about. If they're defeated before an enemy and make supplication to thee in this house... Hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel. Verse 35, when the heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place, and acknowledge thy name, and turn from their sin when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou in heaven. So there's elements of this that step past mere uh, sacred shrine, idolatry, uh, the the limits of, of a... Of a, of a shadow where people begin to think the shadow is the actual. And it seems that that, that is, I mean, these were things written down before Jonah comes along. Jonah understands when he talks about the presence of God and the temple, he's not you know, having a, a, a half-baked notion of religion. This, it's still, I mean, it's still Old Testament, Old Covenant. It still doesn't, um, the temple, for all of what it was, wasn't the faith that God wanted to bring about in Christ. But it's, the important thing is, we found, what did, what did Jonah say to the people on the boat? I serve the God of heaven who, what is it, rules the sea and dry land. I think that's what he said. Who, who made the sea and dry land. Some, I forget the phrasing. I serve the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. He's basically saying, I'm the God. I serve the God of heaven and earth. And that is the image. When we, are, when we speak of a religion, it's not just another cult in spite of this interesting backdrop that may be very cultish. I hope it works. It's, it's even more like a halo now with the lights on. Um, we are laying claim that Yahweh is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the God of gods. He is the most high. We're, we're grappling with any other religion that wants to come along. The Zoroastrians say it's Ahura Mazda. We say it's Yahweh. Uh, the Muslims say it is uh, Allah. And they're wrong. We're right. That's what we're claiming. We're claiming that our God made heaven and earth. And he dwells in heaven. And we want to not, not just say a different name, but when he says, made his name to dwell there, this is the identifier that I think 
we benefit from in this, uh, you might say, this moment with Solomon and, and uh, Jonah. Because but when they get down to Acts 7, down there in the middle of the page, this is Paul talking. Um, no, excuse me, this is uh, Stephen talking to the Jews. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, what is the place of my rest? Did I not make all these things? That's Isaiah 66, Stephen telling the Jews that. And it's sort of central to the Christian voice that we are the representatives, much like Solomon was, or Jonah was, of an idea that says we serve the God of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in the shrine made by men, though we, we honor the shrine made by men. We honor the shrine of, of, uh, of Solomon. But he does not dwell there because he's made all these things. So when Jonah says back in chapter 1, I have it recorded here, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, how do you, when we pray, when we confess, um, I've, I've talked to a number of people who just sort of go, what do you do, you just talk to the ceiling? What are your um, religious posture? Do you, do you, for a lot of people, since we don't have a temple, we're not Mormons, um, sometimes you really want to go to church because it feels like a holy place your prayers are more heard there. Because in your sheetrock bedroom, which you really need to be praying in, it really seems that sheetrock is impervious to prayer. What we're really about though, even though the temple and the precincts of the temple, or any, we go to a wonderful cathedral, which is a godless bit of apostasy, but it, it's still beautiful. Um, you'd feel the same in a temple to, pe to Baal, and you'd feel all prayerful in a temple to Baal, because temples to Baal were really nice too. We've dug some of, not me personally, but important people have dug them up. And they're very like the temple in Jerusalem, because the same people were designing them. So it's not the architecture. It's not you having a ritual. I think it's sometimes beneficial to do things like being on your knees. But what I think is more important is that what is his name? Who is he? If you realize that when you th the Jew thought the temple, that was the place where God made his name to dwell. They didn't even know where that was going to be. When the law, when it talks about things happening in the eventual city, they didn't know where. They didn't say Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't a <coughs> Jewish city. It was a Jebusite city. And the name Jerusalem is not Hebrew. <laughs> It might be named after another god, Shalem. It was called, used to be called Ushalima, and then it was called Jebus, and finally David took it after it was Jebus for a while, and the Jews took it in about, in about 1000 BC, but it wasn't a Jewish city, and they didn't know what was going to be the city necessarily. So they said, wherever thy Lord thy God makes his name to dwell, what I would recommend to you for the good of your contrition, for the good of your prayers, any prayers, prayers of request, prayers of confession, that you identify your God to you. 
that you know His name, that in your prayer, that that's what you're pointed at, this identity. The temple in Jerusalem, if we were to figure out, where are we? What latitude are we at? Here we know. What's Jerusalem? Come on, some science, people. What do we got? Do I have longitudinal lines in my Bible? doesn't have Moscow in here. Nor does it have up and down stuff for... Isn't France kind of like where we are? France is where we are. So let's assume Israel is kind of like where Alabama is. Okay? A little further south. You want our latitude, you said? Yeah, what latitude... Uh, That's longitude. Okay. There's got to be more than that. No. 6.7? 46.7. 46.7. Okay, because when you're driving to Boise, you pass that place. The halfway point. Good shaking the tree, you little infidel. Um, um, it used to be thought that that's why they used aspens for the sacred groves to the gods because you could tell when the gods were coming through because the quaking aspens would flutter. That's why I cut down the groves over here of the Ashtaroth in my backyard. Um, now, um, so the point that was being made, you, you could go to the bother of figuring out what angle facing probably east what would be the closest way to face across Asia or probably across Europe um, to pray towards Jerusalem like the, the Muslims pray towards Mecca to help but you say why am I doing this well even the ancient Jew who built the temple knew why they were doing it his name dwelt there and the temple was nothing to it wasn't claiming to have contained God you were claiming a God of heaven who dwells in heaven from the day the temple was built the guy who built it said I know this doesn't contain you, you dwell in heaven so here in heaven the prayers we direct towards this place because this place is your name be sure that when you pray you identify my father always encouraged us through our years growing up to not shortchange God in identifying him and would train us to say the Lord Jesus Christ not God or um, uh, my wife doesn't like the phrase and I don't mean to offend any of you if you use it it's a God thing an awful lot of things are God things uh, the Avengers, I think, <laughs> is a God thing. Um, who? What? Which God? The God of heaven and earth. Identify him. Place yourself, you might say, in his temple. He dwells in heaven. And you might not have a real epiphany-granting architectural place to pray. Our church doesn't have really great high ceilings or, 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 or groin vaults that just keep going. But uh, we do have the God of Jerusalem and we know that he doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. 
because he made all this. And once you start identifying the God who made the linoleum you're kneeling on and the sky outside, your, the, you might say the religious and accuracy of your moment, the direction of your prayer is, becomes healthier, becomes more true. It says in Psalm 18, The cords of death encompassed me. The torments of perdition assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Now, this is David. I think it's David. It might be a son of the sons of Kohath. Um, I'd have to look again. But um, it's 400, no, 200, 200 years before Jonah time of David um, maybe just 150 175 years these things would have been available to some degree to religious men they would have heard the Psalms of David the collections of, of Solomon were also available but look at what he's the, the, the common thread if you look at a lot of Psalms you'll see it sounds like like uh, Jonah remembered ways that David had phrased some of his distressing uh, I am dra dragged down to shale. Look what it says in verse 5. The waters closed in over me. That's obviously literal. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Now, the same thing, not only is there a holy temple you are cast away from, cast away from thy presence, and the, the, and the direction of prayer coming back to the holy temple to identify him, but you see in the Psalm 18, from his temple he heard my voice. You also get the same description of almost dead. A lot of people, theologians, argue about Jonah, whether or not he's actually dead in the belly of the whale uh, because of the description that is, bring up my life from the pit. Um, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Sounds like a done deal, like I died. But you also are looking at, if you look at a number of psalms, a number of descriptions that, like in 18... Uh, <clears throat> oh, even in uh, 30, uh, 88, the next one. Thou hast put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Thy wrath lies heavy upon me, and thou dost overwhelm me with all thy waves. It's almost, uh, uh, Jonah could almost have said that, but it's also, you get the sense that they had a broader view of the experience of death, that we were talking about it one night, I think, uh, I don't know if it was Daniel or somebody raised the question of, uh, of um, Saul being not quite dead, King Saul. It says, no, Goliath. Goliath not being dead. He killed Goliath with a stone, and then he goes up and gets his sword, and he kills him. Okay, which time did he kill him? We're very... You know, we've got probably a Supreme Court case that we can go to and says, when the brainwaves stop for at least 15 minutes, it's dead. 
they didn't maybe think that way. They may have thought oh, they have a very a very graduated issue of death. That you were in the hands of death, and I think Jonah would have naturally thought this when he went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, of course, it's also, you say, how much of this is a poetic handling of his awful experience? He's, he's rolling around, probably a little constrained in the gut of a big fish, rolling around in the stomach acid of a smelly fish for three days. It's pitch black. All you know is their world is spongy, and it smells, and you don't know which end is up. And it's, it's big. It's big enough to swallow you. And you don't know how long it took before you got enough of it together to think about what you're doing. We don't know that he even did anything other than he cried out to the Lord. Now, you might be the kind of Christian that believes this was written after the fact. He wrote it after he got back to land and said, I, this is what I was about when I was crying out, but I was just crying out. Well, I'm fine with that. I don't think there's... You get into trouble with the authorities if you if you held up something like that. But it's similar to remember all of this is all of this is the uh, uh, pointing to what Christ said about nothing will be given to this generation. It's an evil and adulterous generation. They shall receive no sign, but the sign of Jonah. So as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the whale so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So he says, okay, this is, this is a, an illustration at least, if not a type, of what I'm to do. It's very possible that some people argue that Jonah then had to die to be the type. Well, no, to be a type, you don't have to be as completely identified with it. But you have that passage in Psalm 16, the Messianic one. I have the one verse here, Psalm 16:10. For thou dost not give me up to Sheol, nor let their God, the, thy godly ones see the pit. And that is quoted in the New Testament, let thou not let thy holy ones see corruption. And it's Messianic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the same sort of ideas are present with Jonah. I have been taken down to Sheol, I'm essentially dead. I cried out. My, I, I about gave up. My soul fainted. And I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to him. Now he's, he's back at you. Notice how he's going back and forth between talking to you and talking to God. You know, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to thee. He even starts out, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And then he says, and thou didst hear my voice. I don't know if that's just a poetic device that I'm not uh, uh, cognizant of why it's there, but it's of some interest. I don't think he's mixed up as to who he's talking about. But it might be evidence that he really is relating later on what he went through. This is what I did. I called to the Lord and I said this, you know. But the phrase, I called to the Lord, wasn't said in the belly of the fish. But he cry, that his cry was, and I'm cast out from thy presence. Now, what's, what we recognize, if you know the story of Jonah, 
sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is an awful place. Nineveh is full of Assyrians. Nineveh is... Uh, Jonah doesn't like him because, I'm not spoiling anything here, he doesn't want God to forgive them. That's, that's where we're going with this, folks. Jonah is a bastard and doesn't want the Assyrians forgiven. And it's that resistance. This is, when, when we select our God, the name that he put on earth, and he starts revealing himself, um, all the way through the Old Testament, he's able to do this in Romans quite a bit, where Paul argues how, <coughs> how the Jews don't like this, but in the law he shows his care for the nations. It's, it's all the way back there, of the nations. I was reading along, uh, I don't know, a few years ago. I think it was in Amos. Where's Amos? It's one of the small ones you could easily slip by. There it is. Um, in chapter 9 of Amos, says, Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kir? He goes, Big whoop, I got you out of Egypt. I did the same for the Philistines, and I did the same for the Syrians. I led them out of certain places. We begin to realize that the Old Testament God, though his name is identified by he taking an elect people and you might say riveting them with his law, riveting them with his tabernacle temple, his priestly set, sending them prophets, all the way through the Gentile mission, the, the, the idea that God's mercy would go to Gentiles. Think of that, 825 approximately B.C., Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach to the Gentiles well before Peter ever went to see Cornelius in Joppa, Caesarea. Caesarea, yes. Long before the first mission to the Gentiles in the New Testament. But even back then, the Jews didn't like it. Jonah didn't like it. But this idea of the name of God is a point that when I understand the name of God gets riveted, but it doesn't, doesn't contain him. Look what it says in... Verse 8 there in the, in the prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty. Now it seems like he might be talking of everybody who worships vain idols, Jew and Gentile alike, and they have a true loyalty. Uh, when Paul um, Paul talks to the Athenians in, in Acts 17 here on the uh, right hand side he's preaching at this point, Paul is the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth same God comes up, same definition same name does not live in shrines made by man echoing Stephen's remark to the Jews talking to the Greeks who he had just perceived were very religious because they had all these idols and shrines nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything like Isaiah said in Isaiah 66 when he said didn't I make all of this I don't dwell in shrines because I made it all it's all mine 
Isaiah says it back in the 700s. Jonah says it in the 800s. Solomon says it in the 900s. David says it in the 900s. It's, it goes all the way back. Our God, who made heaven and earth, his name is one that rules the world. He owns it all. And we need to process that so that we don't trip into a localized religion that has to pray towards Mecca, that has to pray in a vaulted ceiling, that has to have the religious accoutrement around to, to, uh, to get it right. It's the definition of who he is. Not a theological definition, but an identifying definition. The God who made heaven and earth. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my father would always say, the Lord God Almighty. He, he, he wouldn't just say God. I recommend to you that you use the name, the name of God, Yahweh, instead of God. God is just a, a kind. Yahweh is who he is. He says, so I should be remembered through all generations. And we haven't. We still just call him God. He's easier to, he's easier to not mean anything. But given that he's the Lord of heaven and earth, given that he has given life and breath to all men and everything, and he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. So his Gentile mission here, he's saying from the very beginning, God wanted to be locatable that he might be definable that we would know which God. <coughs> but he wanted to be sought by all men everywhere. That's why he set the boundaries of their habitation, that they might feel after him in the hopes that they might find him. Yet he was not far from each one of us, for in him we live, move, and have our being. And he quotes Epimenides there. And even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Quotes Aratus. Both of them Stoics. Well, Aratus is a Stoic. Epimenides is a prophet. But... <coughs> Paul is preaching one of the key Gentile, gospel to the Gentiles messages in the book of Acts. He echoes Stephen on this matter. And it's to identify our God, the God of heaven and earth, that all pagan peoples recognized. If you read anything about the nature of theism in other people groups, they have a sovereign God who's usually the God of heaven. I think in China, China it was Shang-Ti, the god of heaven. And you had that in ancient Babylon. I think it was, um, which one was it? Anu, the god of heaven. Who is our god? He's identified himself in history. He made his name to dwell on Mount Moriah. They built a temple on the threshing floor of Aruna. And he let his revelation grow there about who he is. This aspect that Jonah is recognizing in the, the, the belly of the whale that people have forsaken their true loyalty if they worship idols, but we know from later in the book he's not quite where he needs to be. But we need to be in a place where if we face the holy temple, we pick it up as definitional. We pick it up as clarifying who we're talking about. But we know he made heaven and earth. We know he rules all things. 
Verse 9, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to thee. What I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. I think it's one of the strongest, and I would recommend it, one of the strongest, you might say, short travels of thought. He's in the belly of a whale. Pitch black, squishy, smells like fish oil. He knows he's, his number's up. He's at, the, he's at the bottom of creation. We're, we're next door neighbors to death and on talking terms. I mean, it's just that bad. He has no promises. He's not told what's going to happen. He hasn't read the story. He doesn't know that whales can throw up. He doesn't know that. He just knows he's been swallowed by a sea beast, having been thrown overboard in the middle of a storm, in the middle of an ocean, or sea. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, Psalm 50 on the right hand side there down at the bottom. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Sounds like that's where he's following the recipe. Yeah, he's like, okay, what do I do next? Pitch black, smells like fish. I thank God, I sacrifice thanksgiving. I commit my vows to him. I will pay him what I have vowed. And call upon him. And Jonah, I, I like what Jonah says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Because that's what when you call upon him, you're not saying, Lord, help me get out of this. But he's going to get you out of it. it, it it's his mercy. He's the one that is going to step in and do the good to you. Responding to your <clears throat> thanksgiving and responding to your you might say I'm going to pay up what I owe. So that sounds a little bit uh, like you know what's it called a prid pro quo or you scratch back my back I'll scratch yours okay I'll be a better Christian next time just get me out of this obviously the Lord knows the heart the Lord knows who we are if he's hearing our voice in his holy temple from the belly of a fish in the middle of the Mediterranean yes he's going to know whether or not you're sincere but I would recommend you pick up thanksgiving almost before you pick up confession you know um we can get caught up misunderstanding our God if we, well, who was telling me about somebody? We were talking to some friends who were talking about one of their children. Um, they were doing something and they were supposed to put things in the car and the kids didn't get them in the car and the kids got in trouble for not having them in the car. And one of the kids, a very conscience-sensitive child, apologized to mom for not having her things in the car. Well, so well done. But she didn't have any things to put in the car. 
there, there wasn't anything she was supposed to put in the car, but she was ready to apologize. Okay? And it uh, is a lesson for her, but sometimes when we, when we don't identify our God, what name am I speaking to? The Lord who made heaven and earth, who does not dwell in shrines, but dwells in heaven, highest heaven, has heard my prayer, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I'm talking to. And I thank him for this world. So much of your sinfulness in your heart, your attitudinal problems, you being pissy towards your husband, or, or, or some sort of difficulty to your wife, or to your children, or to your parents, whatever it is, roommates, um, is clarified or cleared up if you submit yourself to the way the Lord has made the heaven and earth. It says that in Romans chapter 1, when although they knew to God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. And he gave them up to the futility of their minds. If we restore thanksgiving, even when it tells you to cast all your anxieties on him with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, make your deeds known to God. Offer to God a th sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows. In this case, you gave your life. You're a Christian. You gave your life to Jesus Christ. you got to do what he said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? You don't want to have that conversation later on. That's, that, that's going to be really uncomfortable. And he's going to ask you then, why did you call me Lord, He's even going to say that to people who uh, healed people, who worked miracles, <coughs> who were workers of iniquity, in his mind. What you have vowed, what you have done, what you need to accomplish, you've got to do. You don't have to wait until someone who you disapprove of starts to do what they're supposed to do. Then you'll get around to doing what you're supposed to do. We're talking to another person about... about um, parents that were all worked up about a child away from the Lord and and uh, but the parent was all worried and fearful and anxiety ridden and all the rest of them. Well, why are you expecting the kid away from the Lord to repent from their evil ways when you won't repent from your evil ways? We've got things we've had. You're not going to be judged for how your parents or your children or you're, you're just going to be he's going to Every man will be judged according to that which he has done, or she. None of you girls get out of this. I, just, I think you've done some bad things somewhere along the line. Pay your vows. What did you say you were going to give him again? Your life? All things? You called him Lord, which means he gets to decide what you do with certain things. Anything he's spoken about that applies to you, you get to do because you called him Lord. What I have vowed I will pay. And then you can, deliverance belongs to the Lord. There's almost a, almost a confident um, sense of the Lord's mercy. And a grant that it's, it belongs to him to give. It's the one another wonderful thing about it is you can't get much lower than Job Jonah was. Because not only was it's worse than Job. Job was miserable, and all of his family was dead. And his friends were not supporting him. But he knew he was good. Jonah doesn't know that. Jonah's in the belly of a whale. 
um, and uh, it gets pretty bad. He is an image for our Christ dying, bearing the sins of all men, descending into Hades, and being raised on the third day. He's an image for that. How come Job isn't an image for Jesus? But it's wonderful that when he, what does it say, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. When I, my soul fainted within me. It's this last minute thing. It's like when God says he was going to destroy the world before, for the flood. And then it says, and then he remembered Noah. It's that last minute, oh yeah, there's one guy who's not, a, it's not awful. And Jonah is at his last bit of energy, ability to stay afloat, no pun intended, alive. And his prayer came to thee in his holy temple. He will hear, as it says in Kings up there, hear thou in heaven, in thy dwelling place. You don't have to, the wonderful, not just wonderful, but that God is merciful, but that the worst place you can get, the barely enunciating the words, but clearly toward him, towards his house, towards his name, for his good, in thanksgiving to him, he hears you. And that's how I wrap it up here at the bottom. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land, other than the vomit. And what you basically found out is you can't you can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. It turns into you think you're running away from home, and he's going, okay, shut you out. Cast you off. Then you start to measure it differently, and your life starts to circle the drain. But remember, you can get all the way down to the bottom and still repent. I don't recommend getting that far. Um, it's a The wonderful thing about Jonah as a book, it's a book about God's mercy. We saw it with the sailors in chapter 1. We saw it with with Jonah in chapter 2. We'll see it with Nineveh in chapter 3. And then we'll see it with God, kind of to Jonah again in chapter 4. But it's about mercy. So as to understand our God... Um, you probably heard me say this before. I think Satan's big sin wasn't pride, but I think his, and I'm supposing this, but that he didn't understand mercy. He understood righteousness, but he didn't understand mercy. And God was ready to, because he's loving, wanting to be merciful. And, um, and that's the only reason I could think that Satan would rebel in heaven, having known God, is if he thought he was more righteous than God. And sometimes when someone is merciful to a sinner, it just doesn't seem righteous. They should be punished. But we need to get this clear, who our God is. Not just maker, not just heaven and earth, but merciful over heaven and earth. Well, again, four minutes early, but I started right on time. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Bless the rest of the evening. In your son's name, amen.